0: Welcome to the third episode of our Artisan MBA program podcast. Today, we are back in our usual recording setting, which in itself is pretty unusual, by the way. You have to imagine us sitting in the middle of an empty and quiet classroom without any students, debates, Excel sheets or presentations. What is also unusual is that in this episode, we're not here to tell you about the ins and outs of our programs. Instead, we are looking ahead to the year 2020, which, by the way, feels very much like the future is finally there. What are the MBA trends that candidates who are looking to do an MBA can expect? What are students expecting? And how are the candidates themselves changing? Here to join me in this crystal ball effort today is Brandon Kirby. In his role as Marketing and Admissions Director here at RSM, he has spoken to hundreds of candidates from all over the world. He's also in close contact with colleagues from other schools. And he's an alum of our very own One MBA program.
1: Brandon, welcome. Ramseys, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here in the empty classroom today.
0: So I just said you spoke to hundreds of candidates, or was I perhaps underselling it?
1: Maybe a little bit. I think if I had to count, it's probably in the thousands, but uh, yeah, who's counting?
0: fact of the matter is you talk to a lot of candidates all day, every day. What do you see is the big trend when you look at the candidate pool of people wanting to do an MBA?
1: I think uh, something that I've seen starting this year uh, is an evolution in what candidates are looking for. And I think that evolution will only continue to pick up speed uh, as we move forward into 2020 and and beyond, quite frankly. What candidates now seem to be looking for goes beyond just personal uh, or professional gain. In other words, an increase in salary, uh, a better job title. Uh, There seems to be a real desire and a, a real need for purposeful, impactful change. Um, And that's something that I think if you looked back 10 or 15 years ago, uh, that wasn't always the case. And whether I'm speaking to someone in Taiwan, or if I'm speaking to someone in Brazil, these sort of conversations come up. And typically it happens when we ask, what do you want to do after the program? It's not uncommon uh, for the students that we speak to, or the candidates we speak to, to want to remain in Europe for a few years after graduation. Ultimately, uh, a lot of them would like to return to their home country to help those countries become better. And I think it's that notion of of, you know, national pride and wanting to give back uh, is something that I see a lot in students, which I'm not saying wasn't always there before, uh, but it's definitely becoming a more central theme, not only uh, in wanting to pursue an MBA, but also the program in which they choose.
0: And when you say uh, societal impact or impact at all, what kind of impact are we talking about?
1: It's very industry based, I think. I think there's, a, there's still a sense of logic in, in what uh, these candidates are looking to do. Uh, so, if someone is in the energy sector and they know that's where they'd like to be, it might be going back and helping with infrastructure or power grids or bringing energy or water or resources to parts of their countries that maybe uh, doesn't have or doesn't have a, a good infrastructure to, to deliver that. So, that's one example. Um, I've seen other people who are on more of the marketing PR side. Uh, so, how can we help uh, governments to liaise with entrepreneurs better? How can Can we help governments to liaise with the private sector better? How can we help in that regard? So I think there's a sense of logic to it. It's not wishful thinking and aspirational dreams. They try to ground it in reality of, okay, uh, this is the education I want to get, this is the experience that I have, and then this is the impact I would like to have afterwards. So I think that's something that's also a change, is that uh, it's not like years ago when companies would greenwash their, uh, their efforts for sustainability, you're starting to see companies now even take a real firm stance with solid action on becoming more sustainable, um, you know, recognizing climate change. And you see that in students as well, that they have clear plans on how they want to have that impact after the program.
0: The trend that you described is very much about people wanting to change their own industry, Do you also see maybe people wanting to change industry maybe towards more sustainable sectors?
1: Yeah, and I, I do see that. I, I think that it goes beyond, like I said, just their own personal sort of uh, gain or industry. It's, it's much wider than that. Um, you know, With our mission statement, for example, being force for positive change, um, we've taken that approach because we've grounded that in the reality of the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. So we've sort of taken the lead in that regard as well of saying, okay, well, it's great to say you want to be a force for positive change in the world. But what does that mean in, ra- in reality? What does that mean in practice? And where do you where do you put your efforts? So it's it's not necessarily the industry, although sometimes it is wanting to, in the case of people who are maybe coming from those industries that are historically considered uh, maybe um, not the greenest or are or, or not the ones that are the most forward-thinking in that regard. Um, but I think it's also a much broader spectrum, too, um, of how can I work in a company and help them to do business better uh, in a more sustainable way, however you define sustainability. Because of course that varies from person to person. Uh, So it's a little bit of both. The way
0: you describe it, do you see more purpose driven candidates? How does that change your recruitment process?
1: It's a challenge, I think, candidly. Um, Unfortunately, Most, if not all, of the major rankings bodies still place a heavy emphasis on salary after graduation and salary increase, and rightfully so to a certain degree. Uh, Doing an MBA is a big investment, uh, of course, of time, but also of money, depending on the program you go to. Uh, Unless we forget that a lot of the MBA students who are doing programs are coming from, you know, maybe developing economies or economies where the local currency isn't as strong as the pound, the euro or the dollar. So it's a big investment. It's a big risk. So ROI certainly should be part of that. But what that also means is that as a school, you sometimes can be really put between a rock and a hard place because you want to to help have this impact because I believe that's what a business school should play a role in as far as how can we affect business. Well, we can affect it through research. We can affect it through consultations with with companies, with our professors. But we can also have an effect with uh, the students that we graduate and put out into the world. So it it. It it shifts a little bit who you're looking for, Uh, at least in our case, again, with having the mission statement that we do. Ultimately, we still are a business school. Um, Ultimately, companies still need to make a profit uh, in order to keep the lights on uh, and also in order to continue to be able to do good. Because if a company isn't sustainable um, and it ceases to exist, then they're not able to have that positive impact so I think it is a challenge when you have candidates who maybe don't have that traditional background of finance or consulting uh, that are coming to the door that have fantastic profiles and really align with what we believe the world should be uh, post-MBA, um, especially as the industry is still creating these roles. there's an, I think also when you're looking at supply versus demand, there's a challenge where there are a lot more people who would like to be in these roles, whether they be CSR roles or roles that haven't even been created yet, but companies are maybe a little bit slower to uh, not only create those roles, but to also remunerate them in a way that makes it attractive for someone to want to dedicate their, their career in that particular space. So it's a little bit of a challenge. I think a lot of schools are still figuring it out. And hopefully over time, you know, the rankings bodies will also be able to have different ways to, uh, to look at schools from a rankings perspective so that it's not solely based on how much money someone's bringing home at the end of the day.
0: Let's say I'm a candidate that your message really resonates with. How do I make it clear to an admissions manager or committee that I'm really purpose-driven? How do you define that?
1: Yeah, well, in the case of our full-time MBA especially, and this will change for our executive programs as well, uh, the one essay question that we ask you is, is how have you been a force for positive change in your world or if you feel like you don't have a, a good response to that, how will RSM help you to be a force for positive change in your world? Uh, so that is a very clear example of how um, a candidate can, can showcase either how they've been or how they will be a force for positive change. It's important to remember that force for positive change or positive change in general doesn't have to be always huge, big things, right? It can be something as simple as you know, teaching someone how to do math or you know, helping someone across the street. It sounds simple, but that can have such an impact in that person's life far beyond the amount of time or maybe the effort that you put in to be able to, to achieve that, uh, that positive change. So I think sometimes uh, candidates get really wrapped up with it needs to be digging a well in uh, a country thousands of miles or kilometers away from where you live. That's great, uh, but it needs to be sincere and authentic. Sometimes you get the impression when you're speaking with people because they know what our mission statement is and they've, they've listened to podcasts, to videos, talking about the kind of candidates that we look for, uh, that they maybe come in and, and oversell it. And I think you can pick up on that. So as a candidate, look within yourself, look at the your experience in your career and in your personal life and identify those areas and tell us a good story about it. You know, Tell me how it really impacted not only the person that you worked with, but how did it, it impact you I think that's another thing that's really critical because it's a lot about empathy and emotional intelligence um, that that can be showcased in in that essay and in those conversations. So through the conversations we have with you, through the essay, certainly, even in the interview, there are sometimes questions that will come up that revolve around this. So there's ample opportunity for a candidate to, uh, again, uh, illustrate how they've been a force for positive change, uh, and that helps us when we're going through the admissions process.
0: So this speaks very much to a candidate's motivation and desires. When you look at the demographic and the background of the candidate pool, do you see or do you predict any changes um, for the future in that?
1: Yeah, I think that we're seeing some interesting things where uh, we're having candidates who have, uh, and again, we'll talk about each program separately, uh, candidates for our full-time program who have maybe more than the average experience. Um, So, for example, the average experience for our full-time program is usually around six to eight years, depending on on the year of, of working experience. What we're seeing is a shift also of people who are coming back perhaps a little later in their career who are interested in doing a full-time MBA. And I was at a conference recently um, where there was a presentation talking about the education life cycle now that we're living longer, now that we're working longer, and that there's a real need to maybe come back to the classroom um, in the middle part of your career to you know, tune some things up, learn some new skills, um, learn what's happened in the industry since maybe the first time you were in school. So I've seen in the full-time program an increase in candidates with more experience uh, applying. On the flip side, in our executive programs, the part-time programs, we've actually seen a shift where we have uh, even more younger candidates who are considering uh, doing the program because they recognize there's a real benefit for doing it early in their career. But it could be that, uh, you know, they're working for a company they really enjoy, it could be the company is sponsoring them and has identified them as a high potential employee. Um, So we also see uh, maybe younger than average candidates uh, showing up wanting to do one of the part time programs. that's something when speaking with colleagues from other schools is something that we're seeing and it's a trend especially the trend of of perhaps more experienced people looking for full-time programs I think that's a trend that will continue into the the foreseeable future Um, and that's not even talking about if there's a recession uh, in the next year or two how that will affect the application pool because typically recessions do have an impact on who's applying uh, their experience their age Um, and so that's something else that I think we'll see uh, change. So I can only
0: imagine that will lead to a more diverse Canada, but also a student pool. How does that change the dynamic in the classroom?
1: Yeah. On the one hand, it doesn't change it too much because we've always had, at least here at RSM, a a good range of people in the classroom. Um, So, you know, the minimum years of requirement in the full-time program is three. So the youngest we typically see is maybe mm, 26, 25 in some instances. Um, But then the range can go up into, uh, you know, High thirties, low forty, for example. Um, I think moving forward, it's going to be it's. It's also about delivering what each person wants, right? Because everyone wants something different from a program, and so that's one of the challenges that I think any well any company with with customers faces is that every customer would want wants something different, and especially in the world that we live in now, which is more about personalization, individualization, customization. Uh, how a company, including business schools, are still able to be able to deliver that notion of customization when you perhaps maybe have a wider audience in front of you, I think the critical thing is especially when you 're speaking with people who are the outliers of the average so if you 're looking at a distribution curve, uh, especially by age, uh, those that are on the younger side, you know having conversations about saying, well, you know you might have to f- you might have to prove yourself more because people might look at you and say, "Well, you only have that minimum three years of experience so what have you seen what what can you add which I'm not saying that's right, but humans are humans, and sometimes that can happen. On the other end of the spectrum of someone that has significantly more experience than average, having that conversation during the admissions phase of saying, listen, you're a good fit for the program, but just know that you might be sitting next to someone who has 10 years less experience than you do. And there's a lot, of course, that can happen in 10 years of experience. Um, here are the things you should think about, and are you okay with that? And having an honest conversation, because it is very dependent upon the person who's in the classroom. Um, so I think the classroom dynamic, it can, well, obviously, I think over time will, will change a little bit, but I don't think it will be for the worse. I think it will be for the better, because you'll have that mixture of uh, people who um, are aspiring to be in management positions and aspiring to to learn a lot of the concepts, but maybe don't have the real-world experience with someone coming into the classroom who maybe does have managerial experience, but is looking to either pivot industries or, again, to sort of retool and relearn and update their skill set, I think that can be a really good blend. Um, But I think all parties need to understand, coming into the classroom, what to expect. It's about setting expectations.
0: So far, what I'm hearing is a more diverse Canada pool and a more purpose-driven Canada pool. How do schools in general, and maybe RSM MBA in particular, respond to that? Do they you know, make changes to the program
1: or um,
0: how do they deal with that?
1: We've seen a a lot of different approaches from schools. Um, So some have offered very specific MBAs and very specific verticals. Um, Some have offered specializations within an MBA. So an MBA focused in data and analytics or, or whatever it might be. Um, there's a lot of opinions on on what makes the most sense um, you know ultimately, at the end of the day, an MBA is a general business degree, and that was what it was by design and that's not to say that you shouldn't have specializations along the way, but I also think that if, at the end of it I always say you, you know you have to eat your meat and potatoes, you have to have your vegetables right so you 're always going to need to have those core courses finance accounting operations things of that nature uh, to really make sure that you're when you come out as a graduate that you have Again that broad skill set to refer back to at different points in your career one of the ways that we approach it here at RSM um, is through uh, our electives so students are able to pick electives either in uh, particular clusters so finance um, sustainability operations or they can of course pick you know random ones there so that there's not a theme also through our study trips is another way that we are, uh, are sort of helping students to have flexibility on what they learn. Uh, the study trips are to nine different destinations. They focus on different topics from fintech to machine learning to doing business in China to entrepreneurism uh, to sustainability and sustainable businesses. Uh, so that's another way that our students are able to customize. And then the, th- the third thing would be the advanced career concentrations that we offer. And we have several that we that we have around different, uh, different disciplines. That's how we've chosen to approach the customization uh, and individualization part of the
0: Another way to personalize, I guess, a program would be to change the delivery. Could either be online or blended. How do you see the future for that?
1: So I think you see sort of three major camps. You have the traditionalists that say, nope, you know, what it needs to be face-to-face, synchronous in a classroom um, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, There's the blended, you know, mixture, if you will, of face-to-face. And then, of course, there's the online program. I think all of them have merit, Um, And it also depends on the situation of the candidate. So if if you're someone who has, you know, you're working two jobs uh, or um, due to family or or job obligations, you're not able to, you know, come out of the workforce for a year or maybe even to attend uh, courses once or twice a month, I think an online program is a fantastic way to educate yourself and to to give you, again, that upgrade and skill set that you wouldn't have otherwise. So I think there's merits to online programs. However, for me personally, and this is my opinion, there is something to be said for the in-classroom experience that you can't get if you were to only do online or if it was only to be remote um, you got to have some personal contact. That's where the networking happens. That's where the shared experience happens. That's where some of the magic really happens. Because doing an MBA isn't just about the knowledge, although that's very important. It's about so many other things that you get from the networking and engagement with others. Here at RSM, we're looking at our... EMBA program now in, in really reevaluating how we deliver that. You know, currently it's uh, twice a month, Friday, Saturday, uh, in class with, of course, work that's done outside of class. Uh, but we are currently in development of a program that would be a hybrid. So it would still have uh, in-class, uh, face-to-face synchronous sessions, uh, as well as um, sessions that would be online, uh, whether that be through, you know, recorded video or if that would be actual online sessions, remote. Um and also maybe trimming down the duration uh, and perhaps even the number of times that a student has to come on campus. And we recognize that you know time is probably one of the most precious things that our students have, or any of us for that matter. Um, and so that's how we're looking at approaching making changes to the program. So coming up with a more um, modular, dare I say, blended approach um, to the program. Um, it's something that I expect that we should be able to share more with listeners over the coming months as we really start to define what those pillars are and what they look like. But I'm excited with the progress we've made on that. Um, And then I expect there will probably be some upgrades uh, or changes, if you will, uh, to the full-time program based on what we learned from that.
0: For anyone who's following any MBA website at all, there's a question that keeps on popping up. So I suggest we take a bigger crystal ball than we had and expand the horizon to 2025, is there still value in doing an MBA at all in 2025? Especially looking at all the specialized masters that are coming up, or maybe different forms of getting educated at all, maybe even outside of university. How do you see the place for an MBA?
1: I think there will come a time where MBAs will price themselves out of the market so that that question becomes increasingly difficult to answer with any amount of certainty. And we've seen that in the United States with, I wouldn't say many, but a fair number of programs being shut down. A week doesn't go by whether it's not an article or a book or you know, a comment posted about the increasing costs of education around the world, but especially in the U.S. So if we keep seeing increasing costs in that regard, I think it really does make it difficult to say, is there value in doing an MBA? Assuming, of course, that salaries aren't rising in the same regard, because if salaries are rising at the same rate, the MBA is rising, cost of MBA is rising at the same rate, then I think it's a, it's a good argument. But beyond the cost, because I think that's a big part of it, what you get from an MBA that you can't get from other uh, things, as I, as I touched upon a, a few moments ago, is the experience from learning with and from others, you can learn from forums, you can learn from YouTube, you can learn from a lot of different places, but there's something special about bringing together, in our case, you know, 150 students from all around the world with different experiences, with different outlooks together. And what you learn from others uh, is, is immense. You learn a lot about yourself, um, you get asked questions and put in situations that you don't normally get put in in your your day job or your daily life. So I think that that's another thing that is really valuable for an MBA. And then I think the third component that you can't necessarily get from other things is the leadership understanding and training of how to become a better leader. Because The thing about an MBA, whether it's a one-year program, a two-year program, a full-time or a part-time, is that it allows you to focus on yourself for an extended period of time. It allows you to explore yourself, your strengths, your weaknesses, your blind spots that a weekend course or a conference or YouTube videos just can't do. So if we look at things such as the labor pool What jobs are going to look like in 2025 because, you know, the argument is, that well, there's going to be less jobs because of automation and everything else. That will mean that the leadership component of those people who are still around, in other words, not the robots, but the people, need to be led. And they need to be led by someone uh, who understands how to lead. And that really comes from, in my belief, a lot of what you learn in an MBA, not just from education, but also from your colleagues in the room.
0: I'm personally reassured that we will be podcasting about MBA for the coming five years. Thank you, Brendan Kirby, for joining us today in this discussion. If you have any questions, please feel free to go to our website and look up Brendan Kirby, get in touch with him. If you're listening to this through a social channel, feel free to drop us a comment, and we're happy to get back to you. Thank you for listening. Until the next time.